This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 355th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a former United States congressman and senator who represented the great state of Nevada in Washington, D.C. for 34 years, rising to become the leader of Senate Democrats for 12 years. The longest serving U.S. senator in the state's 156 year history, and along with Alvin W. Barkley and Mike Mansfield, one of only three U.S. senators to serve at least eight years as Senate Majority Leader, he has been described by the Washington Post as, quote, this young century's most influential senator, close quote, by the Las Vegas Sun as, quote, the most politically powerful man in Nevada's history, close quote, and by Politico as, quote, easily the most feared man in Nevada by politicians of both parties, close quote. And even his longtime nemesis, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell, said of him, quote, underestimated often, his distinctive grit and determined focus nevertheless saw him through many challenges, close quote, and, quote, continue to make him a formidable opponent today, close quote. Senator Harry Reid. Senator Reid, after suffering a gruesome injury while exercising on New Year's Day 2015, retired from Congress in 2017 and returned full-time to Nevada, where he has continued to closely monitor current events and preside over the fabled Reed political machine, which has helped to turn Nevada into a solidly blue state, while also spending more time with his wife of 60 years, Lydia, their five children, and their 19 grandchildren. And now, at the age of 80, he is the subject of an excellent new documentary that is airing as part of PBS's Earth Focus series, produced by PBS SoCal and KCET, The New West and the Politics of the Environment, which explores how Reed accumulated power and then spent it in the service of the environment of Nevada, resulting in a state that is 87% public land with national parks and renewable energy generators and without nuclear waste, serving today as a model for the rest of America. Over the course of our conversation, Senator Reid and I discussed his odds-defying journey from Searchlight Nevada to Capitol Hill, the challenges he encountered there passing legislation related to not only the environment, but also Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, and an $800 billion stimulus plan to help save the economy in the midst of the Great Recession. Why, in 2013, he exercised the quote-unquote nuclear option by eliminating the filibuster for most presidential and federal judicial appointees and how he feels about that now, given that the Republicans have since eliminated it for Supreme Court nominees as well, and what he thinks about the current moment in America, about Republican senators like McConnell and Lindsey Graham taking a very different approach to the U.S. Supreme Court appointment of Amy Coney Barrett than they did to Merrick Garland, about President Trump contracting COVID after downplaying and bungling the response to it since March, and about why he is so strongly supporting his former longtime colleague in the Senate, Joe Biden, in the 2020 presidential election. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Senator Reid, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. I guess first and foremost, I want to ask just because I I think the uh, for a lot of people, the most recent thing they may have heard was uh, that you had been facing that uh, a tough diagnosis. But I understand that you've recently been doing better. Can you can you let our listeners know just how you're doing? A lot of people I know are are thinking about you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm doing just fine. I'm still undergoing treatment, but uh, they're making significant strides every week on cancer treatment. So I've gotten really good treatment. I feel pretty good about myself and I'm uh, looking forward to a future of longevity. Terrific. Well, I want to go back to the very beginning as we do on each episode of this podcast and just ask if you can talk a little bit about where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living. I know people hear the name Harry Reid and they know the name Searchlight, but maybe they don't know much about it and about what your folks were doing there. So I hope you can talk a little bit about Searchlight that. Searchlight was, uh, gold was discovered there in 1898. So for 10 years, it was a really a booming metropolis, one of the fastest growing places in all of Nevada. They had water system, they had paved streets, they had electricity, but it soon thereafter it started going downhill. Had a railroad uh, that came from uh, California into Searchlight. So it was really a thriving community. When I grew up during World War II, it had seen its better days. My dad was a hard rock miner, but frankly, a lot of times he worked and People would give him checks that bounced, and so he was out of work quite a bit. My mother took in wash. You may ask whose wash she would take in in a town of a couple hundred people. A searchlight had a reputation, deservedly won, by having many brothels. Uh, when I grew up in searchlight, there were more than, well, not, not, there was 13 brothels at one time. So... I grew up with, um, it's not politically correct today, but they were referred to as the girls. The girls were the prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And the biggest brothel in Searchlight was a place called the El Rey Club, run by a man by the name of Willie Martello. And uh, he put in a swimming pool for his um, prostitutes. But he was a good guy in the sense that every Saturday he would clear the pool and leave it um, for the little uh, urchins of searchlight, the waifs of searchlight. So that's where I learned to swim, in a brothel swimming pool. Wow. As I said, um, my, my mother took in wash. She did the wash of the people who worked in the brothels. And, uh, you know, in this in this new documentary, which is really well done and fascinating, I, I learned so much watching it. One of the things I learned was that you know, when you were growing up there in Searchlight, you say there were virtually no trees, no grass, no water. So for you, you, you discovered your love of the outdoors by going elsewhere. Can, can you just, you know, share a little bit about how you were introduced to the outdoors? Well, Searchlight, as I wrote in my opening paragraph in the book I wrote about the history of Searchlight, my history of Searchlight is the best ever written and it's easy to get there because it was the only one ever written. But I wrote it in 1998 
It was while I was running for re-election. It was hard to do, but I did it, and I'm glad I did it. Um, when I grew up in Searchlight, there was nothing there. It was a, all my friends could roller skate. You can't roller skate in the dirt. I couldn't roller skate. Um, so, you know, we had a little hoop to play basketball, but it was in the dirt. So that's uh, where I was raised um, in Searchlight. Um, prostitution was not legal, but it went on anyway. The uh, law enforcement people of Clark County, Las Vegas, didn't do anything about it. So that's, it continued. Mm -hmm. There was nothing in Searchlight. It was no water of any kind. No, um, There was, I mean, trees were non-existent. In our yard, we had a tree, one tree, had a one rose bush. And where I fell in love with the environment was a couple of times when I was a boy living in Searchlight, when we had, when we had a vehicle, a couple of times we'd go to a place about 20 miles from Searchlight, right over the California border, called Fort Paiute or Paiute Springs. It was a mm -hmm. fort they had built in 1864 to protect the mail routes to California. And uh, it was it was amazing. It, it has rock walls and places for gun emplacements. It was like a storybook. And out of this volcanic mountain gushed water. It ran almost a mile and a half into the desert. And in that, they had lily pads. They had cat cattails you could break open and the cotton-like stuff would fall out. It was just unbelievably big cottonwood trees. So I was always, always remembered that. And so after I finished school, which took a long time, got out of law school, I decided I would go back. And I went back to Paiute Springs, and what a disappointment. The rock walls had been knocked down. The cottonwood trees had been burned. It was just, they screwed it up so bad. And that is where I became an environmentalist. And that, uh, yeah, and that I know, uh, you know, we'll talk more about just the amazing things you did for the environment while you were in office. But I want to uh, go go back to your school days just for uh, another point, because I know that for high school, you had quite a journey each week. I, I uh, have read about, you know, these hitchhiking 40 miles each week to Henderson to go to school there. Uh, staying with your relatives. And while you were there, I think, was when you, you know, established one of the, clearly one of the most important relationships of your life. Can you just share for listeners how you first became aware of a gentleman by the name of Michael Callahan and uh, and why you think he took such an interest in you? There was no high school in Searchlight. So you had to go someplace else to go to high school. And I did go to, to basic high school in Henderson. Now, I didn't hitchhike every week. You know, I would stay with people and some, the more I stayed there, the more I would have things to do on weekends. But I did hitchhike uh, back and forth. So I'd see my parents. And I uh, hitchhiked not only back and forth to Searchlight, but I hitchhiked as I became a young adult. I hitchhiked all over one. Hitchhiked L.A., Cedar City, Utah, I hitchhiked a lot. But I, when I came to Henderson to go to high school, I wasn't dressed like the rest of the kids. And my mother ordered my clothes out of Sears and Roebuck catalog, and I didn't have the same clothes they had. But I found that people were pretty nice to me, and no one bullied me. I certainly wasn't afraid of anybody. People liked me, and I have been in a lot of elections but the most important election of my career was when I ran for junior class treasurer. Now, that may not sound like much to anybody, but I was elected junior <laughs> class treasurer. And to me, that was a big deal. I'd finally been accepted by my peers. And that was the beginning of my involvement in school politics. The next year, I was elected student body president. And that was an interesting thing. I'll be quick... Um, a little vignette here. I'd been sick. I, it was probably some kind of a staph infection. At the time, they called it rheumatic fever. I was sick 
in bed, and three girls came to see me, Cookie Shrek, Patsy Lopeman, and uh, Patsy Kazay. They came to see me. They wanted, said, you should run for student body president. I said, I can't do that. I would wind up losing. I said, Russell Williams has been freshman class president, sophomore class president, junior class president, and everybody knows he's going to be student by president. No, they said, you should run. Oh, we'll help you and get you. And anyway, they they helped me get elected, and I became student body president, which was really a big deal for me. So I'm a senior in high school. I played football. I played baseball. And my senior year, I can still remember, you know, the the so-called high school big shots are there on the first day of school, standing around, and in comes this guy and walks with a limp. And he's got a big comb over, he's a big man. And that was Michael Callahan. And he got our attention very quick. There was a young man in high school named Ken Smith. He was big, a big red-headed guy, weighed a couple hundred pounds, 190 pounds. And he had beaten up a smaller guy and O'Callaghan heard about it. So he, in front of everybody, went up to Ken Smith. He said, you know, Smith, I think you're a chicken shit. I'll bet you're afraid to go down to the <laughs> boys club to me with me after school, and we'll spar. So he he couldn't say no, and he, would, and he couldn't back down. So O'Callaghan had a, in Korea, had the bottom part of one of his legs blown off. But he could still get around just fine. And so they, we went to the boys' club afterwards, and O'Callaghan hit him so hard, so quick. O'Callaghan said he thought he'd killed him. He went down, he hit his head on the bottom of the ring. So we got instant uh, appreciation and admiration for Michael Callahan. He was a terrific teacher. And um, he became, he's the only really mentor I ever, I ever had. He was my mentor. He helped me. I can remember I came back from Washington to take the bar, which was only given once a year up in Reno. And uh, I hadn't graduated from law school yet, but I petitioned the Supreme Court to let me take it early. And um, he met me at the airport in Reno and gave me a $50 bill. I'd never seen a $50 bill before. But he took care of me from then on. In Nevada, you run independently, governor and lieutenant governor. And we ran independent of each other. I ran for lieutenant governor. He ran for governor, and we both won. And uh, I became the most important, the most powerful, is a better word for it, lieutenant governor in the history of Nevada. And the reason for that was everyone knew that O'Callaghan was close to me, and they knew that whenever I set out to do something, I had the premature of Mike O'Callaghan. And so I was a good lieutenant governor, I helped him a lot, and um, we did a good job for the state. Absolutely, and I, I think people should know that when we talk about you and he running for those positions, you were just a, a few years out of law school. You were only 30, I believe. But I, I, I wonder, because as you say, it was this thing dated back to high school. Then uh, in college, I understand it was he who kind of helped you to uh, essentially get a, a scholarship to be able to go to college. It was he who helped to get the job that you had as a Capitol Hill police officer to pay your way through law school. And then, you know, you guys ran together. Why do you think he took this interest in you? Did he sort of sense that you had talent that others hadn't seen or he liked the underdog uh, story that, you know, you were kind of making yourself into the best version of yourself that you could be coming from Searchlight all that way away each week? and Or, you know, what, what was that about? Looking back, and looking back, I think people, I won't say felt sorry for me, but they knew that I'd had a, I didn't realize it, but they knew I'd had a kind of a tough time. And I think he knew that I was, could be a good student. And so he worked to get me a scholarship uh, to go to, college. And then for law school, uh, we had no law school in Nevada. So what a lot of young men did, because women didn't go to law school much in those days, they would go to Washington to get a job 
with one of the members of Congress, a patronage job as a police officer, as an elevator operator, uh, you know, jobs like that, doorkeepers. And uh, he called Nevada Congressman Walter Baring, who served 22 years in the House, to get me a job. And I got a letter back from uh, Baring, B-A-R-I-N-G, and uh, it said, it don't have anything for you. Now, Callahan was terribly incensed. And I was there when he called him. And he said, you didn't have the decency to even spell my student's name right. You spelled it R-E-D. And he said, I'm chairman of the Democratic Party, and you'd better get him a job, or I'll do everything I can to make sure you're not elected again. So that's how I got my job in Washington. <laughs> First job there, yeah. So flash forward, as you say, a few years later after law school, uh, is completed and you guys have spent four years as governor and lieutenant governor. I know that's when you saw your first opening to run for the United States Senate. And and then uh, that didn't work out by a small margin. Then you ran for mayor of Las Vegas. That really didn't work out. All of this in a very short period of time, just a, a few months away from each other, those elections. At that point... I, but before that, before I got beat... Mm -hmm. I had been city attorney of Henderson. I'd been chairman mm -hmm. of the county hospital board, which was a big deal at the time. I'd served in the Nevada Assembly. So it wasn't as if I came from nowhere. I ran for the Senate. It was unbeatable. You know, I was never lost anything. And Paul Laxalt would throw out the hook and I would go for it. Uh, he was very clever and I wasn't. And I lost that race by... 524 votes. And then, of course, you mentioned the mayor's race. So everyone thought I was dead and gone politically. But in 1982, for the first time in the history of the state, we got a new congressional seat. However, prior to that time, Michael Callahan had appointed me as chairman of the Nevada Gaming Commission. And that was at a very, very difficult time. There were wiretaps that were made public by the FBI that showed the Aladdin Hotel was run by people, mob out of Detroit, the uh, Stardust, Hacienda, and Fremont were run out of groups out of Chicago. So it, I was chairman of the Gaming Commission. It was a very difficult time because they tried to bribe me, a very sensational case, and Three of them were convicted of bribery. So come in 1982, people knew who I was because of my involvement with helping clear the mob out of Vegas. Absolutely. And I know that that, that you know that your interactions with the mob probably partly inspired the movie Casino, what people in my industry will recognize as, you know, the, the car bomb even uh, situation where I know your wife found a car bomb that luckily you know, did not go off. But you know, I would, I've never watched that movie because I heard that Frank Rosenthal, who's depicted in the movie as a good guy, I said, he was, he's an evil man. He's the only man I've ever been afraid of physically, not because he could do anything to hurt me personally, but he was a killer. He hired people to kill. One of my friends lived in an apartment with a guy by the name of Hicks who had parents owned the Algiers Hotel, and uh, he was going out with Rosenthal's girlfriend. Rosenthal had him killed right outside the apartment. So that was a, he's a bad oh guy. God. Well, I, I, I want to ask you, though, you know, before you were appointed again by O'Callaghan to that gaming commission position, at which I know you held from 77 to 81, basically that was what you did in those years between when you were basically when you were out of elected office at the time when you you within a quick succession lose your bids for the U.S. Senate and the Las Vegas mayorship. Did you think that you were finished in politics? Did you think that was going to be hard to come back from? I knew that people thought they had gotten rid of me. I knew they thought that. But in my mind, I was I won't say plotting, but that's a good I was trying to figure out a way to move on. 
I came to the conclusion very early in life that if you have an enemy, the best thing to do is try to make a friend out of that enemy. And I live by that. For example, Rock Salt beat me, but when I ran and was elected to the House of Representatives, my whole team was Laxalt-based. All my campaign people were Laxalt folks. So I've always followed that. I never hold a grudge. I just try to uh, reach out to people who don't like me and try to get them to be my friend. Right. Well, so as you mentioned, you know, U.S. House elected in 82, started in 83, two terms there. So after four years in the House, you then do get elected to the Senate in for the first time in 86, taking office in 87. And I just wonder if you can set the scene for listeners who whose memories don't go back that far and just kind of explain. The Senate, as I understand it, was a very different place then than it is today. What were the greatest differences when you showed up versus when you left? Well, first of all, I had been in the House for two terms, and I was on a CODEL, a congressional delegation. I was in Europe. And um, over the telephone, I learned that Laxalt decided he wasn't going to run for re-election. So within 10 minutes' time, I decided I was going to run for the Senate. And everybody thought that was the dumbest damn thing. I, had, <laughs> I, had, I was opposed by Laxalt, who was Reagan's best friend. I was opposed by Reagan, and everybody thought that I would lose. But I didn't. I had a terrific campaign. It was the best campaign I ever ran. It was really good. And I ran against someone who had switched parties to become a Republican. He had been a Democratic congressman. But Laxalt and, and Reagan talked in you know, switching parties. And I, I won that race. And um, I had worked in Washington as a policeman for all those years. Knew the Capitol. I knew the House. I knew the Senate. And one of the problems that people have who are running an elected to the Senate, they don't know where they are. They, it's a big, great big, buildings are big there. You get lost in them. But it was, for me, it was, I knew every nook and cranny of the Capitol. So that gave me an advantage. So I, that was important that I felt comfortable in the surroundings that we had. And the Senate was, uh, I was very fortunate and I was put on the, at that time, the most important committee there is, the Appropriations Committee, I got on that. That was a, a big deal for me. I got on the Environment Public Works Committee, so I had good committees. And that was a, really a big step for me, forward for me, because I was able to get lots of stuff, direct appropriations for things in Nevada. I mean, it's just billions of dollars. And so they all, they remember me for that here in Nevada because I brought so much stuff to the state of Nevada. I, I remember um, Newsweek magazine used to come out every year with the people who were the biggest porkers in Congress. And I was always glad I was in the top ten. <laughs> Well, and I, I guess uh, that leads nicely into one of the points that's made in the documentary, uh, The New West and the Politics of, Inter of the Environment, which is that it was discovered, I guess, shortly after you left the Senate that more than half of what you did there was related to the environment, gaining national park designations, reforming land swaps, settling water wars, just a lot of the stuff that, that the film gets into more in depth. But I wonder, you know, it's kind of interesting that that almost from the outset was a priority of yours only because it's not something that necessarily is electorally beneficial, right? That that was actually quite divisive within the state of Nevada, a lot of what you were doing, because uh, having so much of the state be designated as public land was going to affect people who wanted the land for other purposes, right? Yeah, I was really surprised when I gave my all my papers to UNR, University of Nevada, and uh, the archivist came back a few months later and said, 
did you know that over half the work you did was in the environment? I said, no, I didn't realize that. But in hindsight, I did do quite a bit. Uh, it was something that I was interested in. Uh, the environment was not as big a deal then that it is now, and I kind of I think I helped make it a kind of a big deal. I mean, I when we when I came to Congress, Nevada had a few thousand acres of, of wilderness up at Jarbidge, in Elko County. When I left, we had over five million acres of wilderness. We had two national monuments, one of which was almost a million acres. I was able to push off into renewable energy. You know, I'm, I don't mean to be boastful here, but I was made sure we had renewable tax credits for solar. As a result of that, mm-hmm. you can drive 15 minutes out of Las Vegas and come to a place where they have millions of solar panels in a dry lake there. And it's that way all over Nevada. We have a lot of solar. So I am glad I did. I think that um, the fact that Nevada is 87% federal land, I went from being the most popular person in congressional delegation because I was from rural Nevada. I really was. But that fell by the wayside when I started going for wilderness around the state. They didn't like that even though in hindsight it was the best thing to do. Uh, So, yeah, I've been interested in the environment and other things, but the environment certainly had my attention. Yeah. Now, one of the things that a lot of other senators and, and members of the press have noted is that throughout your time in the Senate, you spent an inordinate amount of time actually on the Senate floor, unlike a lot of senators who prefer to... I guess be elsewhere, their office or or wherever else. Why was that? What is it? Is it just about relationship building or or uh, enjoying being there? Dashiell was the leader, and I was the assistant leader or the whip. And he said, "You can make this job anything you want it to be." And the reason I went to him with that, he, you know, I thought he was favoring other senators. He said, "Look, you can make your, this job anything you want it to be. It's all yours. Do whatever you want to do." And so I spent my life on the Senate floor. I I protected the Democrats. I protected the Republicans. I was really a good whip. I was on the floor when the Senate came into session and when it ended. Those were long days, but I never left the floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I had constituents from Nevada, I would just go to the visitor's lobby and meet them there. Um, And... I don't think it hurt me any. I think it was, I knew all the rules, the floor rules. I was able to learn a lot. And uh, yeah, so I did. That's what well, I did. And we should tell our listeners that you became the whip and basically uh, therefore became a part of the Democratic leadership in 99. Uh, and it was in 2004 when Dashiell surprisingly lost. And at that point, going into 2005 is when you became the Democratic leader. But before we talk about anything to do with that, I just want to ask you about one kind of colorful moment that I think you had something to do with as the as the whip. This was in 2001 when the Senate was very closely divided. And you, I believe, were instrumental in converting Jim Jeffords, the senator from Vermont. (laughs) I'll explain that to you. I was part of the Democratic leadership before I became the whip. I was, Dashiell appointed me as head of the Democratic Policy Committee, which was a leadership position in that. People got to know me there. It was the educational arm for the Democratic Senate. Okay, so let's fast forward to uh, the Senate is evenly divided. Same number of Democrats, same number of Republicans. So I came up with a theory that no one has ever done before. But I did it. I was chairman of the Environment Public Works Committee. I had a staff of 17 to 20 people. It was a big staff, good staff. But I figured this. What if I could get someone to switch parties? And I thought the culprit would be Jim Jeffords because he didn't like what the Republican administration was doing regarding education. So I went to Jeffords, 
I told Dashiell, I said, I'm going to meet with Jeffers in the morning, see if I can get him switchpoint. He said, I don't have time. I'm busy. So I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. You come if you want. So I met with Jeffers. And I said, Jim, I'm chairman of the Environment Public Works Committee. You're a member of that committee. I know how much you enjoy working on environmental issues. I've got a staff of 17. I've got a beautiful office suite. Tell you what, I will give you all my staff. I will give you all my office space. You just switch parties. And he took the deal. <laughs> from, from Republican to independent, but caucusing with the Democrats, right? And it was, uh, it changed the country. It was unbelievable. But frankly, I'm not boasting here. I'm just being factual. I don't think anyone, I don't think I know, no one in the history of the country has ever done anything like that before. It was a first and probably the last. But I did it. I'm glad I did it. It changed the country. Absolutely. Amazing, amazing accomplishment. So now... You become, after Daschle loses, you become the Senate initially minority leader for two years, then the majority leader. And I wanted to ask you, because I know you've really, you know, you knew your history of the Senate. Um, there have been such different approaches to being a party leader from from LBJ's aggressiveness to Mike Mansfield and some of the others. I just wonder, was there somebody who you modeled your tenure after, or did you just kind of figure out your own path. I uh, decided that I was going to try to replace Daschle. And I made calls after he called and told me he was going to lose. And I uh, called all my senators and said, what I want to do is reestablish the committee system. It had kind of, Daschle had set up a lot of task forces and the committee chairs hated that because it took away their clout. So well, that was one of my selling points. I'm going to reestablish the strength of the committee system. And we did that. And the committee chairs and the members of the committee really appreciated it. You asked me what kind of a leader I wanted to be. I decided I was going to be kind of my kind of leader. And I knew that the leaders I'd watched before, Bird, Dashell, Dole, Frist, all these guys had been heavily dependent on their staffs. They were one, they, they didn't depend on other senators. But I decided I was going to do something differently. I first of all reached out to Chuck Schumer and brought him into my leadership. He became a two-time chair of the Democratic Central Campaign Committee. That is to find uh, senators to run and to protect those that are running to raise money. He did a wonderful job. And then I had brought in Dick Durbin, my friend from the, we served together in the House, and Patty Murray. Those three senators became my eyes and ears. There would be days I would have them come to my office three or four times during the day. I didn't do anything without telling them what I was doing. That way, when I had my Monday night leadership meeting, I knew we were okay because I'd cleared it with my three fellow leaders. When we had our meeting Tuesday in the morning and at noon, I was protected. They took good care of me. So I, that's how I ran my caucus. I wanted it to be everybody pulling the oars the same direction. And it worked out okay. I was mm -hmm. the second longest leader in the history of the country. Just only one that beat me time-wise was Mansfield. Yeah. Well, I know that I think it was in your first year as majority leader that a first term senator caught your eye and you uh, really took an interest in him, pres uh, future President Barack Obama. Why were you, you were a believer in him very early on? I believe you encouraged him to run for president. And uh, obviously you two accomplished so much together, especially in those first few years when he was in office. Eight hundred billion dollar stimulus plan, the expansion of the children's health program, pay equity for female workers, Dodd-Frank, the auto industry, big education bill. But I know that the thing that you have said was the most challenging and also the most rewarding to get done was the Affordable Care Act. And I just wonder if you can explain for people who don't know how, you know, how the sausage is made in a sense, why was that so difficult to uh, get past and why was it also so 
personally gratifying for you? I think it brought it came back in a way to your parents. Right? Step step back first. I had the okay. feeling that Obama had something special, so I called him into my office. He's a brand new, brand new senator, and I surprised him. I said, "I think that you should immediately start planning to run for president." I mean, I the conversation was longer than that, but that's basically what it amounted to. And I'm the first person to talk to to have talked to him to him about that, and. To show he didn't forget that one, he was running for re-election and was re-elected. On the night of his re-election, his staff called my staff, said the president's going to first call after he finishes his acceptance speech is with you, Senator Reid. So he called to tell wow. me, he said, I called you to tell you that oh, you're the reason I'm here, is what he said. So I appreciated wow. that. Wow. A lot of people don't understand some criticism because I changed the rules of the Senate. Well, first of all, the rules of the Senate have been changed lots of times. But here we were. Obama had been elected president, a very popular president. But the Republicans made two decisions right away as soon as he was elected. Number one, he was not going to be reelected. They failed miserably at that. Number two, they would oppose everything he tried to do. Now, they did well at that. They'd oppose everything he tried to do. So here it was, a very popular president, and they filibustered everything, including the Secretary of Defense, who, by the way, was a Republican, Chuck Hagel from mm -hmm. Nebraska. Hagel, they, yeah. They filibustered that. They filibustered. We couldn't get, uh, we had six, seven vacancies on the D.C. circuit the second most important court in the country. They wouldn't allow me to put anybody on there. The National Labor Relations Board, we couldn't get a quorum there. They, they were just stopping everything that this popular president wanted to try to do. So I changed the rules, and I'm glad I did. That's November 21st, 2013, that you, uh, you made that. Rule change, and I just just so people understand the logistics. Prior to November twenty first, twenty thirteen, you would have needed sixty votes to have most federal judicial appointees and most presidential appointees, right? Yeah, all of them. And we changed the rule that change it, but still, it took a super majority to get somebody on the Supreme Court. That was until that's until they did what you had the the part of the filibuster that you had left in place. They blew that up in 2017. But but think about this. This very popular president couldn't get anything done, as I said. So mm -hmm. in changing the rules, here's what happened to President Obama. He has a legacy now that will be written about for generations to come. We were able to do Lily Ledbetter, the great lands bills we did, the things you mentioned, Obamacare, uh, the most significant change in the history of the country with Wall Street, with Dodd-Frank. We did it all. And in uh, fact, we passed the final vote on the Affordable Care Act. It took place on Christmas Eve, if you can imagine that. But I had to get 60 votes <laughs> and um, enough votes to get it done, I, sh I should say. And we got it done. We were able to get it done. And it was really difficult because Nancy Pelosi, my dear friend, she had been screwed so many times by the Senate that she wasn't willing to do her reconciliation bill, which only took a simple majority, because she'd been turned away so often late in the game by the Senate. So I said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Nancy. I'll get a letter signed by every Democrat saying no matter what you send us, they will make, we will make not a single change, not a, we won't change a paragraph, we won't change a sentence, a period, or a comma. And uh, so I got all the Democrats to sign it. Robert Byrd of West Virginia wouldn't sign it. But to his credit, he wrote his own letter. And I took him over and showed him to Nancy. And that was it. We got it done. And why did, I mean, for, I, I think President Obama has also spoken about the fact that was, you know, one of the proudest moments of his life. Why for you, I know there was personal significance, right? I mean, for healthcare, for your own family growing up, this this would have made a big difference. 
Well, I am. Um, and we didn't go to doctors when I was growing up in Searchlight. I can remember my mother got hit in the face with a ball and she started losing her teeth and she wound up with no teeth. And my dad, I can remember pulling up with a pair of pliers, a tooth he had that was aching and abscessed. Uh, so I, I felt strongly about the need to do something about health care. And that, so Obama, I would call him, I called him quite a few times and said, Mr. President, I can't get this done. I don't have the votes. And he said, my getting this passed is more important than my reelection. Keep working on it. And we finally got it done. But it wasn't easy. There are a lot of heroes in a lot of heroes in this. But my one that I'll talk to you about briefly here was Ben Nelson of Nebraska. He's a conservative Democrat from Nebraska. I needed his vote and my staff I'd met with him quite a few times. And my staff said, uh, Senator Nelson's staff called and said he's going to come over and see it four o'clock this afternoon. Well, I knew it was going to be bad news. I knew that. But he walked in and he said, Harry, it's the end of my career, but I'm going to vote with you. And he was right. It was the end of his career. That beat him. I still call Ben every month or six weeks just to remind him what a good guy he is. Absolutely. Well, and uh, I think we all owe you guys uh, and you great thanks for the Affordable Care Act and uh, whether people realize it or not. But now, more recently, I've, I've got to ask you about the fact that, you know, so New Year's Day 2015 is uh, obviously you, you suffered this very tough accident with uh, exercise equipment, from what I understand. And that was maybe the beginning of your decision to to retire from the Senate. I wonder just in terms of events that have happened since then, I just hope I can ask you a few questions. Why, in your view, did President Trump win in 2016 and was it avoidable? I know that you had, in fact, uh, I believe, urged Secretary Clinton, who you'd been in the Senate with, to pick Elizabeth Warren as her running mate, which I think might have appealed to white working class voters in a way that could have made a difference in such a close election. I think the yeah. big, biggest problem was that Comey was the cause of our losing. I, I sent him a letter mm -hmm. in August telling him that the Russians were messing with our election and he should do something about it. He's head of the FBI. And he didn't respond to me. Again, I called him, sent him another letter in October. And he, rather than doing the right thing, muddled things up and actually hurt Hillary because he talked about her emails rather than the important part, which was Russian interference in our election. So that's how mm -hmm. we wound up with Trump. Mm -hmm. And then once we had Trump, you know, the Republicans have sort of used your decision with the filibuster as an excuse to do the same with the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, McConnell's gone around calling it the Reed rule and Grassley's getting rid of blue slips, meaning that Trump can fill judicial seats even in states with two Democratic senators. I guess, you know, what do you make of, of their insistence that the filibuster, they w do you believe they would have changed the filibuster even if you had not? If anyone believes differently, I will sell you two Brooklyn bridges. <laughs> right, right. So what does it say about America in 2020 that even after four years of Trump, there are 40 some odd percent of Americans who still support him and only one Republican senator, Mitt Romney, who I know you've reached out to about this, who had the cojones to sort of acknowledge that he had committed an impeachable offense. What does it say that, you know, also that so many people today believe in nonsense like this, the QAnon conspiracy theories and all of that. How did we get to this point? I think the Republican senators have lost their souls. I served in the Senate when we had Hatfield from Oregon, Danforth, the Episcopalian minister from Missouri. We had Chafee from the war hero from Rhode Island and on and on with these Heinz from Pennsylvania. These very, very moderate, strong Republicans. But what has happened with the present cast of Republican senators 
is they are afraid of Trump. And so whatever he does is okay by them. And that's why we have Mm -hmm. the mess we have in Washington. And as I've said before, the filibuster's on its way out. It's not a question if it's going to be Mm -hmm. gone. It's a question when it's going to be gone. For all legislation. That's right. And Trump has been a disaster for our country. And I blame, I don't blame that all on him. I blame it on Republican House and Senate members who are gutless. Well, the one who in some ways has been the most, I think, hypocritical would be your Republican counterpart for many years, Mitch McConnell. I mean, he blocked, obviously, Garland from having even a hearing. And yet here he is trying to ram through Amy Coney Barrett under the same circumstances. What is his problem? Has he always been like this or is even he? Uh, well, yes, Mitch, you know, is, Mitch, is, yeah. what? Mitch is cold and indifferent. And that's doesn't surprise me at all. And, and I say this about another big disappointment. I was very close to John McCain. Now, he and I disagreed mm-hmm. politically, but I always considered him a war hero, which he was. And while he was alive, one of the great, one of the outstanding Republican senators was Lindsey Graham. But with John having passed away, Lindsey's lost his soul. I'm glad he has a tough race in South Carolina. He may lose that race. He's behind right now. And I hope he loses. Mm-hmm. And how do you explain him? I mean, is that just, a, you know, purely about power? I mean, he's literally on tape. He started going... He started going. Play, he started playing golf with Donald Trump, and he became his pal. Seems like he he always needs the, you know, sidekick that he kind of answers to. But um, are are we in a constitutional crisis at this very moment? I mean, we have a president who literally was hospitalized over the last few days. Apparently, he tweeted today that people should not be afraid of COVID. He's leaving the hospital having, you know luckily survived so far for for his sake, but 200 some odd thousand uh, Americans are dead and he's telling people they shouldn't be afraid of it. And if we'd had a decent president setting masks and other standards that people would follow, thousands and thousands of people would not be dead. I think that uh, his saying this is just, and people believe the guy, that's the sad part about it, but it's, uh, and he's not out of the woods yet. I hope he has a hundred percent recovery, but he better be careful because this stuff is not, you know, he's loaded up with, with steroids now, of course, and they make you feel good for a while, but I hope it continues. <laughs> I hope he continues feeling better. Absolutely. And then just for uh, the final stretch here, I wonder if I can ask you just basically a few of these are, are basically just the first thing that comes to your mind. You've already answered the first one I was going to ask you, which is, should the filibuster be eliminated altogether? I know you feel that that's inevitable, and it sounds like you think that should happen. So I'll go on to the next one. You are known for speaking very softly. What was the last thing that really caused you to raise your voice? Well, I try never to raise my voice. I've always been a, I remember when I was a jury, tried cases before juries, the judges would be mad at me and speak up. I can't hear you. It's just how I am, and I'm, I don't. I can still be pretty upset, but I don't raise my voice. Mm-hmm. Next one of these, just uh, what is the biggest systemic driver of partisanship today? Is it gerrymandering or social media? Or I think it's Trump and his Republican minions in the House and the Senate. I think once mm-hmm. once we're rid of him, I think the country's going to move back to a more moderate, bipartisan body. I think it's I think it's going to work out just fine. I think that Trump's going to lose. I think Pelosi's going to build on her majority in the House, and we're going to take the Senate, and I think we're going to have a, a responsible government. Next one of these, you've, you've known Joe Biden, I guess, since at least when you joined the Senate. Is he the right man for this moment? Joe Biden is somebody I admire so very, very much. Here's a man who overcame really bad stammering. He couldn't talk when he went to elementary school, but he practiced and practiced in front of a mirror. And he still, you can still tell, and he still is working on his speech. You know, that's the way he is. He has a smile sometimes that appears unnecessary, but that's part of how he's learned to overcome this stammer. I have such admiration for him. 
He's a brand new senator, right at the top of the world. He's there 10 days. His daughter and wife are killed in a terrible car accident. Truck hit them. His two boys are scrambled and hurt badly. He and his sister Valerie have raised those two boys. Uh, He's had a brain aneurysm, missed several months from the Senate. He's had the difficulty with his love of his life, Bo, his son, with brain cancer. I just have, I have such admiration for him because he's had the trials of life and has overcome them. He now has beautiful Jill, his wife, after having been a, uh, without a wife for many years. Uh, she's just been a wonderful mate for him. I just think uh, I have nothing but admiration for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Should there be term limits for senators? It seems like you you said you wanted to leave uh, while you still had your fastball, essentially. But it seems like that's not always the position people take. Should there should there be term limits? We have term limits now. They're called elections. I'm totally opposed to term mm-hmm. limits. I, what they've done, okay. term limits have screwed up our state legislatures all over the country because you wind up having legislative body run by the staff, and uh, that's about it. It just didn't work very well. Got it. What do you miss most and least about life as a senator? Well, I spent 37 years in Washington. I enjoyed Washington a lot. I don't miss it now. Um, I watch what goes on. I try not to interfere interfere with Senator Schumer at all. I don't want him thinking I'm looking over his shoulder. But I, um, it it was, that was then and this is now. So I don't dream of being back there. Do you stay in touch with any uh, of your former colleagues, any Republicans in particular? I'd be curious to know. Yeah, I stay in touch with with, uh, Shelby from Alabama. I stay in touch with Mm -hmm. Durbin, Schumer, and Murray. Uh, a lot. Uh, keep in touch with good senator from Hawaii. He's shots is such a good guy. I keep in touch with Coons from Delaware. I keep in touch with senators. Mm-hmm. For Nevada coming out of this pandemic, how's Vegas going to do in your opinion? And, and also uh, will Nevada become, I know you've talked about, you know, after the, all the caucus problems in Iowa and some in Nevada. Will Nevada end up in the next election cycle, do you think, the first in the nation and a primary? I don't know. We're working on that now. I think that um, caucuses leave something to be desired, as proven in Iowa. And we didn't do so well in Nevada either. So that's something we're working on. But we got to get rid of this uh, plague that we have before we get Nevada up running again. It's it's been hurt much by the coronavirus. We have our union, 75,000 members, culinary union. Most of them are out of work. It's been extremely difficult for Las Vegas. Absolutely. Well, and the final question is just, if you can kind of put yourself back in the mindset of being the Senate Democratic leader for a moment, let's say Joe Biden God willing, (laughs) wins in November, shows up in January and, you know, knowing that there's going to be this uh, aggressive opposition to a lot of what he does. What what would you advise him to try to do right up top uh, in the way that you and President Obama got so much done in those first two years uh, in particular? What would you say Biden should how should he approach the beginning of his presidency if he wins? Biden's a deal maker, okay? He's done very well with that. I think he has to uh, see if the Republicans are willing to do anything together. If I wouldn't give him much time, a month or so, if they not, then I think he has to move in and get rid of the filibuster. And then any any particular piece of legislation, or you think you just see what see what the situation is? We got rid of the filibuster. We could do something on climate change. We could do something on infrastructure development. We could do some things on creation of jobs, um, which infrastructure development would do a lot toward that. Mm-hmm. Gun violence. Yeah, a lot of stuff you've you've written about. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this and for, for all of your service. And I just uh, I encourage people to watch this documentary. It's it's fascinating. So thank you again, Senator. Call anytime. Bye. 
Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.